In the world of obesity, I think both of us agree that fructose and saturated fats are evil and that they are contributing to obesity. And our work suggests this, and I think you've just summarized this, and also to fatty liver. For sure, the data shows, you know, in terms of the practical thing for our diets, that saturated fats can increase fatty liver pretty significantly, probably more than just sugar when sugar is given with a low-fat diet. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hey friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today I sit down with Richard Johnson, PhD, author of Why Nature Wants Us to Be Fat for part two of our conversation about nutrition and metabolic health. If you listen to our first episode, which I highly recommend doing before listening to this one, you'll recall that Rick and I spoke about coming back to further discuss his thesis and cover some other studies that we didn't get time to cover in that exchange. Over the past few months, we've exchanged many an email, throwing study after study back and forth, all of which led to today's conversation, which I must say, I thoroughly enjoyed. I find Rick to be a really upbeat person and a passionate medical doctor and scientist, open to discussing his thesis at length, and most importantly, open to having it challenged, something that seems to be becoming rarer and rarer. What is metabolic health? Why is our liver central to metabolic health? What is fatty liver? Is the metabolic health movement overlooking the role of saturated fatty acids in the development of fatty liver and insulin resistance? How can we determine if our liver is healthy? We cover all of this and a whole lot more. As always, all references are included in the show notes. And if you want to watch this, you can do so on YouTube, where full-length videos of each episode of The Proof can be found. Please do enjoy. This is me and Professor Richard Johnson. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements, 
to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Thanks for coming back on, Richard. It was a, a real pleasure having you on a few months ago and uh, I've enjoy, enjoyed our back and forths on, on email since. So um, glad to be finally doing this. Yeah, me too, Simon. It's a real delight to be back on your show and um, your knowledge is wonderful and it's been inspiring to, to have these discussions through the emails. Mm, yes, no the the uh, the feelings are mutual. You're probably getting a little sick and tired of of all of my emails. I'm sure. Um, the 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 main purpose of of sort of doing this today um, was really at my end to kind of clarify a few things about our liver and how our diet affects the health and function of our liver and 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 the flow on effect that this has on our metabolic health and and risk of disease. Before we get into the sort of the heart of what you and I have been discussing on email, um, which really could be summarized best as you know, how, how do different nutrients differentially affect our liver and metabolic health? I'd like to give you the, the mic to, to sort of summarize your thesis uh, for those yes. who, who, who maybe missed our last step or perhaps are in need of a, a bit of a refresher. Sure. So, uh, animals in the wild uh, try to avoid at all costs uh, starvation and dehydration and lack of oxygen. And, um, and, and so these animals, uh, we, we know very much about these biologic processes when there's no food, water, et cetera. But um, what's interesting is it would be much better for an animal to survive if it could prepare in advance for periods of food scarcity. And so our thesis was that there might actually be a biologic process similar to what happens like in starvation or dehydration, but a biologic process that instead tries to prepare you by increasing your fat stores and so forth for a time of, of, of uh, scarcity. And uh, what we found was that, you know, when animals uh, are preparing, animals do this in nature, right? So animals uh, will, will in the fall start gaining weight, especially hibernating animals will, will dramatically increase their fat stores. They'll become insulin resistant. And they kind of like turn on where they, they suddenly are eating more and they, they kind of like activating a biologic process. And, and from studying those animals as well as uh, studies in the, in the lab, we realized that there that it might be initiated by a particular nutrient, 
and that nutrient is fructose. So fructose is the main sugar in fruit, which we think of as healthy. And I think of fruit as healthy as well. And, uh, but if you eat large amounts of fructose, and these, uh, these animals in the wild will eat massive amounts of fructose, um, and uh, a fruit that contains this fructose. And that seems to be um, involved in activating a trigger where they suddenly uh, become hungry. They can't control their appetite. They start eating more than they normally do. They start gaining weight and they actually block the, the burning of fat um, and they stimulate the synthesis of fat and they reduce their metabolism uh, so that they can conserve energy better and they raise their blood pressure a little bit and they, you know, actually it's the metabolic syndrome is what happens. And they develop this. Um, and when, when we block in the, in the animal, when we block fructose metabolism, we can block this switch. And, uh, and so then, you know, we originally thought it was, okay, it, you know, where do we get fructose? Uh, you know, we get it from sugar and high fructose corn syrup and sweeteners and all these soft drinks. And so, uh, so we thought that was the primary cause. And certainly there was a strong relationship between sugar intake and the risk for diabetes and obesity and so forth. Um, and then we had the discovery that the body can make fructose as well. So it's not just the fructose we eat, it's the fructose we make. And what we found was that certain foods we're really good at, at stimulating fructose production. And, and, um, and the fructose is produced from glucose. So it's produced from a carbohydrate. So you make the, the body makes fructose from glucose. So not surprisingly, high amounts of carbs that are what we call high glycemic carbs can be converted to fructose. And so if you give animals glucose, for example, they will develop metabolic syndrome too. But if you block their ability to make fructose, you can really dampen that. Uh, likewise, uh, we found that salt actually helps stimulate the conversion of glucose to fructose. And, you know, we were wondering why animals like salt licks and because they're eating kind of poor carb food. But when you give them salt, uh, they can help convert some of their glucose to fructose. And that over time, over a much longer time, can can lead to obesity as well. And then we we started studying it. We found that um that red meats and processed red meats um, can generate uric acid. And um, uric acid is part of this pathway that drives the switch, this biologic switch from fructose, because fructose generates uric acid and certain foods do as well, like uh, especially animal processed red meats. And we found that th the uric acid could activate this pathway as well. Mm. Um, and so, so basically, we, we discovered that a lot of the foods we like, you know, sweet we like, the salty taste we like, umami, which is the savory taste, is really a, really driving foods that raise uric acid. And so a lot of the tastes we like are to seek foods that actually can have this biologic process that was involved in our, you know, you know that was involved, is used by animals to gain weight. And then... In the process, we also were wondering why, you know, uh, some animals are fairly resistant to fructose, like uh, laboratory animals. You have to give them large amounts of fructose. And we discovered that, um, that, there, that humans, you know, have a mutation where we have a higher uric acid 
And we found that that was responsible for uh, making us more sensitive to fructose. So humans are a lot more sensitive to the effects of sugar. And you can show that. You can make a mouse sensitive to sugar by raising its uric acid. And, um, and so we could, you know, we began to realize that we're actually have activated our, our switch. Uh, vitamin C also sort of blocks this pathway and it's in fruit, you know. So you say, why is that? Well, vitamin C, in, when fruit's just ripening, vitamin, vitamin C or immature fruit has high vitamin C. And as it ripens, the vitamin C drops and the sugar content goes up. And, and so um, ripe fruit is much more fattening than uh, fruit that's, you know, tart and so forth that doesn't have as much sugar. We humans tend to like tartar fruits, which is really good because they tend to be a little bit lower in sugar and higher in vitamin C. So that's good. And we're also, there's not much fructose in an individual fruit and all the good things in fruit that you write about mm. and talk about um, help neutralize the effects of, of the fructose. But as the fruit ripens and it really gets ripe, the sugar content goes up, the vitamin C content goes down, and now it can activate the switch, especially if you eat a lot of them. So if you like make fruit juice where you make like five or six fruit together, you will probably activate this thing. But if you just eat a single fruit, you get the benefits of all the things in the fruit, you know, the flavanols and the epicatechin and all those things. So anyway, so that's the thesis. Yes. Thank you very much for sharing that. I have a, a bunch of, of questions. Um, and and I, I think you know what we're going to, to discuss today, at least in part, is some of the human health um, outcome studies and, and perhaps why some of the results in these studies or most of them um, perhaps are, are different to what you might predict from the animal studies or the mechanisms that you're talking about. And I always do find that interesting because I think the mechanisms are really important, but I'm also aware that, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and this is more just at a high level before we get into specifics. When I think of, of human studies looking at human health outcomes, for example, feeding people different nutrients, say it's fructose or saturated fat or glucose or polyunsaturated fats, and looking at outcomes like how much liver fat uh, increases by or what happens to blood glucose, I find that very compelling data because for me, that's sort of looking at the summation of a lot of different mechanisms, many that we might be aware of, many that we're not aware of. And so I put more stock in that type of study. Um, do you see things differently? Maybe a, a little bit, uh, you know, so one of the classic traps in, uh, in clinical research is um, if, if they don't understand the, the, the physiology that's, and sometimes the physiology hasn't been discovered at that point, but um, it's very easy to, um, to where you can misinterpret a result because it, it looks like it's right, but you may not understand um, the biology. So for example, um, there are these, I think you and I talked about this. There, there are these studies that where people will give fructose to people uh, and they will compare it to glucose, like the Stephen Piper study where he looks at um, comparing which, you know, the thesis is that fructose drives fatty liver a lot more than, than glucose uh, and 
uh, our work suggests that fructose really drives fatty liver. Uh, it's like really powerful. Okay. So, but the trouble is, is that glucose is the wrong control because when you give that, it raises fructose in the body. It, it's converted to fructose in the body. So you think you're comparing fructose to non-fructose. Can I just jump in quickly? Sure. Um, so I know what you're saying there. You're saying, well, it's not the best comparison because in that study, I think the study you're talking about was, I think Johnston was the first author. It was a 2013 paper, um, a high glucose diet versus a high fructose diet. And what you're saying is, well, the glucose gets converted to fructose, so you end up comparing fructose to fructose, um, or at least at, at some level. Yes. My point, though, here that I want to make is that regardless of what the body does to that glucose, what we're, what we're trying to – the question we're trying to ask here is, is there a difference in a real-world setting if someone eats a lot of glucose versus eats a lot of fructose? Now – the fact that glucose might get converted into fructose is interesting, but for me, that's somewhat um, irrelevant to the question here. Well, let, let me tell you why it's relevant. Um, so, if you know, so first, let's go back to this thing, and and just to say that there are now studies in people, two studies that show that glucose, giving glucose to to people, results in an increase, fairly significant increase in fructose in in the blood and also in the brain. So there, there are studies that are now showing this. And in fact, we're, we make somewhere between five and 20 grams of fructose a day, it seems, you know, based upon these two studies. So anyway, so, um, so we are making fructose from glucose. And, um, and so if, you, if the question you're asking is, does fructose, fructose doesn't cause fatty, does fructose cause fatty liver? Or, or is it any any worse than glucose? You're right. If you look at it from that standpoint, you can say, well, both of them cause fatty liver. Mm. And I agree they do. You know, high glycemic carbs will cause fatty liver. Can we just I want to I want to underline and bold this because this this is a point that I think is lost out there and, and I'm listening to a lot of different conversations about fructose uh, online and many people are saying fructose is very different to glucose and um, you know clearly it's metabolized a little bit differently by the body. But that study that we're speaking about here, they looked at supplying 25% extra energy from either glucose or fructose um, and they had, I think it was two weeks doing the diet, six-week washout, and then they did the other diet uh, for two weeks. So every person got the opportunity to do both um, diets. And they did this, interestingly, at both weight maintenance and also at hypochloric conditions. When, when it was at weight maintenance, which is really interesting, despite having 25% of energy from glucose or fructose, there was no increase in liver fat, triglycerides, or liver enzymes. But then in the hypercaloric phase, both groups saw increases in all of those, um, but there was no difference between glucose and fructose. Do you think that people understand this? Yes, but I also think we should we, – let's talk about this a little bit more. So, so first off, you're, you're, you're right. High glycemic carbs and fructose both will increase fatty liver. The high glycemic carbs are working by 
making fructose. And so, for example, in our animal studies, if we block fructose metabolism with, with an inhibitor or like with a not, in a knockout, we can block the development of fatty liver, even from glucose, with an inhibitor fructose. This is important because, uh, you know, several companies, uh, large pharma, are working on making fructokinase inhibitors. I, my little group's also trying to do that. And what, what's great about it is they will block the development of diabetes, these fructose inhibitors, from both high glycemic carbs as well as from uh, you know, fructose. So it, you know, it's, it's fructose that's driving it, but the food could be the high glycemic carbs. Um, now your, your question about hypercaloric versus iso, uh, you know, isocaloric, uh, is also an interesting question. You know, um, we, when we did our studies in animals where we were giving a 40% sugar diet, we could calorically restrict animals. We could actually put them on a diet and they would get fatty liver, like bad fatty liver. And they also became diabetic um, compared to animals that were actually getting starch, which where we could see that the starch was working, but it was just working slower. Um, so we could see that they were going to get fatty liver eventually. But, um, but it turns out that when you eat sugar, um, it will increase fat stores if you take it out long enough. Now, um, I don't remember the Johnston paper in terms of the duration, but wasn't it like eight weeks or something? It was a, that, that was a shorter paper. There are, there are a few that take it out to kind of a month or six weeks, but I, I think that was a relatively short trial. So it took, it took four months in a rat. So that probably would be like a longer time in, well, maybe not longer. You know, actually, I would say, but, you know, four months, you know, was when we saw these changes. In, and so studies that are short term are always a little bit um, dangerous. Can I, can I ask you a question there? Yes. So I think, the, I think it is interesting. So at the moment, based on human outcome data, I haven't seen a single study that has showed at weight maintenance, a high fructose or high glucose diet increases liver fat. Are you are you aware of any studies that have shown that? Um, it, you know, so it would have to be so. So the problem is when you when you give a lot of sugar or fructose, it stimulates appetite, and so if you do it ad lib, energy intake tends to increase. So, um, you, you know, to do an isocaloric study, it's hard to do it for long term because people, you know, because um, you're giving a food that makes them hungry. Mm. But there are a few kind of studies that have been able to achieve this or close to this, right? There's, um, I think, another study, the PARI um, 2020 paper that I sent you, that was, that was slight, slightly different, but that was looking at overweight folks who were randomized to a high saturated fat diet or a high simple sugar diet, and that was for a month. And then they, they did a seven-week washout period and switched to the other diet. And in that study, even though there was a little bit of change in body weight, there wasn't much, and they, they sort of adjusted for that when they looked at the, where the, the, the liver fat, um, what was causing the liver fat to be increased by. 
And they saw that the consumption of saturated fat in that at, at a condition of basically weight maintenance, um, saturated fat led to liver fat increasing by 39% relative to baseline. Whereas the sugar diet, the, in the sugar diet, the, the amount of liver fat was virtually unchanged. So it is, it's a bit, it's striking to me that in a short trial, you can see saturated fat does increase liver fat, but you, you, you don't see. Well, well, let me, let me talk about the Perry study. So the Perry study compared uh, a sugar diet that was 20% fat, 65% carbohydrate with a a saturated fat, high fat diet, which was 45% fat and 40% carbohydrate. I'm I'm looking at a sheet of paper here. And um, in the high fat diet, uh, they actually encouraged fast foods and, you know, uh, you know, soft drinks and so forth. And it was also encouraged in both sides. So both sides were actually getting a fair amount of sugar. It's just one group got a lot more sugar. The way, the way sugar works, um, and this is particularly, you know, observed in overweight people is they, they, um, they develop leptin resistance. So let me just explain the experiment we did to help sort this out. And then it can sort of explain the Perry study. So we did studies in animals and we found that, um, first off, if I put an animal on sugar, okay, um, initially it will, it will, uh, maintain a normal weight. So if I put an animal on sugar for like the first two weeks to a month, what it does is it, um, if you give it fructose in the drinking water or glucose in the drinking water or sugar in the drinking water, the calories they get from the sugar water, uh, they will count that, you know, they will, it will, it, they will reduce their chow intake by the same amount so that their total caloric intake stays the same. They won't gain weight. Uh, you know, and it takes, uh, you know, three or four weeks uh, at least. Um, for this to work. And if you give the fructose in the diet to a mouse, it takes even longer. But if you put it in the drinking water, it's like three or four weeks. And, and then what happens is after about three weeks, the animals will suddenly start eating more than they're supposed to. And so at that point, they go into a, a, a thing where they're hungry, they're eating more, and they've activated the switch. So the leptin, res- and, and we proved that that was due to the development of leptin resistance. And so it takes some time before that happens. Now, once they're leptin resistant, they still won't gain that much weight if they're just on fructose. But uh, if you now give them fat, high fat diet, they will get very fat very quickly. Their fatty liver will go up. And that's because they, they're eating extra calories and that combination of fat and sugar really helps drive weight gain and fatty liver. But if you, and we've even done studies where we've given the fructose and then stopped the fructose, but at a point where they're now leptin resistant. And then when we put them on a high fat diet, even without fructose, they will gain a lot of weight uh, with the fructose, 
I mean, excuse me, with a high fat diet because they were previously made leptin resistant. And then it takes like two or three weeks for that leptin resistance to go away. And what we found is that uh, certain fats, and at least in our studies, like lard, which is more monounsaturated, mono uh, the lard tends not to cause weight gain on its own until you make them leptin resistant. However, butter fat and saturated fats will cause weight gain independently of fructose. And the and you can even make an animal gain weight and fat even if they don't metabolize fructose. So it's, it's a very real effect. So saturated fats in particular can cause weight gain on their own. But when we did a study with saturated fat and fructose, what we found is that if we gave fructose, we got pretty good fatty liver. We gave saturate, this is over four or five months. We gave saturated fat, we got modest, mild fatty liver. And if we gave them together, we got, actually, I'm going to say, I have to correct myself. That's what I, we didn't do that. We gave high fat diet alone. We got mild fatty liver, high fat diet plus fructose. We got severe fatty liver. And then if we knocked out fructose metabolism and gave uh, high fat and high sugar uh, we could block it back to where it was with fat alone. Um, your point is, I understand your point. I mean, fructose alone, you know, can cause fatty liver pretty well, but it doesn't cause a lot of weight gain in the absence of fat. Mm. Yeah. So this is this is a really good point for us to kind of, I think, at this this uh, juncture to to emphasize. I'm definitely not saying that that fructose and glucose, simple sugars, aren't a problem um, when it comes to fatty liver. And also, I think you're you're talking about weight gain. We've mentioned weight gain a few times, but uh, correct me if I if I'm wrong here. But what we're really talking about here is the deposition of visceral fat, or, or mostly visceral. Right. 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 Um, so certainly. Um, I appreciate all of that research that you just shared, and I think that's super interesting. Where I have a sort of difficult time reconciling all of this is when I do look at the human health outcome data, and I appreciate you're saying that maybe it's a duration thing to do with how long these trials are set up. But If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, 
get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What I see is that there's a bunch of different studies that show quite consistently that high saturated fat diets, even in eucaloric conditions at energy balance, if you feed someone, a human, a lot of saturated fats, even if they're at energy balance, you can drive up their liver fat, which to my, to my understanding is uh, a key contributor to insulin resistance in the liver, um, to increased um, triglycerides or VLDLs, um, increased blood glucose as a result of that insulin resistance and a lot of these different sort of um, metabolic consequences. And whereas with fructose and, and glucose, these simple sugars, we're only seeing them increase liver fat in a hypercaloric context. And that makes me wonder a couple of things here. Um, how much of fructose and glucose are f- affecting liver fat comes down to calories versus the sort of inherent properties of these sugars. Um, and, and, and sort of secondly, why most of the conversation around metabolic health is focused on carbs and low carb diet, where I see very, very little talk about saturated fats. Okay. So let's just first begin by saying that, um, in the world of obesity, uh, I think both of us agree that fructose and saturated fats are evil and uh, that they are contributing to obesity. And our work suggests this, and I think you've just summarized this, and also to fatty liver. And when you combine fructose and uh, saturated fat, you get much worse outcomes than if you do fructose with alone or fat alone. And, um, and, and the, you know, like in, in studies where high fat is given alone, 
well, we got to be very careful with the human studies, right? Because there's so much sugar and fructose in the in the population that a lot of people are, are already leptin resistant. A lot of people already are eating a lot of fructose. And so when you just do um, manipulation where you add saturated fat or, you know, it's not like you're, you're comparing saturated fat to, to no fructose. You're, it, 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 they're still eating a lot of fructose. And so it's very hard not to, to, to uh, show that it's not still a combination of the two. The only way, Simon, we're going to prove this is like when there's a, a way to block fructose metabolism. And then what we can do is we can see a saturated fat really still increases the fat level that you think it does, uh, you know, in the abs when fructose metabolism is really blocked. Because like in our studies where we were giving saturated fat, a high fat, high sugar diet, if we blocked um, fructose metabolism, there was no inflammation in the liver. There was no fibrosis. Um, you know, there was fat, but it wasn't, it wasn't causing you know, a NASH or cirrhosis or anything like that. So, so is your hypothesis there that saturated fat is only a problem for liver fat, hepatic fat in the context of a background diet that has a high amount of fructose? I think so. And, and let's take a look at some examples. Um, you know, people who go on a low carb diet uh, can eat a fair amount of fat um, and, but we don't really, at least I'm, I'm not aware. I think there are some cases where they will get fatty liver and especially if the, if the fat in their diet is high in saturated fat, they might get fatty liver, but certainly a low carb diet is associated, you know, tends to be associated with, uh, you know, not gaining weight, not getting fatty liver, not getting visceral fat. Um, and so, uh, there must be something about the carb, the carb restriction that's helping this. That's not to say that saturated fat's not a problem. Saturated fat is a huge problem, uh, as you pointed out. It increases apolipoprotein B. It, it increases LDL cholesterol. Um, it can be pro-inflammatory. You know, uh, it can lead to atherosclerosis. Um, it can raise fat in the liver. So it's, it's not like um, saturated fat is good. And I, I definitely, in your camp, that we should be restricting saturated fat and animal fats are particularly high in saturated fat. So, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a good argument. I think this is also one of the reasons why like the Mediterranean diet done well um, yeah. is, is associated with very low risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, yes. Just on that point, though, about ketogenic diets, I, th I think definitely, um, and this brings us back to like what's better for, for weight loss, ketogenic diets or high-carb diets, and we've got that diet fit study we spoke about previously. I would agree with you that ketogenic diets can be good for reducing liver fat, um, but we have to be careful because this can be confounded by weight loss. A lot of those papers are, are looking at liver right. fat in the first six months. And right. of course, we know that you, if you lose a significant amount of weight, you know, pretty much no matter yes. what you eat, you're going to reduce your liver fat. But when we, when we sort of pan out and look at more 12 to 24 months, 
I mean, we start to see people regaining weight on all diets. Um, and when we go a bit further, I think low-carb diets in the first six months, you do see they have an advantage for weight loss. I would be the first person to put my hand up and say that. But as you sort of go out a bit further, it, it becomes actually quite a level playing field with other diets and you'd see adherence drops off. Um, and my, my issue or my questions there are, okay, as that person is adopting the high saturated fat keto diet and losing weight, great, the, the liver fat goes down. But we know that they're going to regain weight. They're going to be at weight maintenance or in a hypercaloric situation eventually. How good is this diet that is just you know, packed with saturated fats from butter and, and meat, yeah. etc.? So one of the, yeah, you know, uh, I, so first off, some people on a keto diet will eat so much saturated fat that their cholesterol can go up into the 500 range. And there, there are even cases, there were two cases way back in the 1930s where these Arctic explorers went on what they thought was an Inuit diet, but it was a much higher fat diet and their cholesterols their blood became like pemic and uh, their cholesterols went to 800. So you can, you can do a keto diet the wrong way. That's for sure. Um, and another thing is that, um, you know, uh, meat proteins, uh, in particular, um, and especially things like organ meats and they can raise uric acid and, um, and so uh, just by the purine content and interestingly, high purine vegetables do not raise uric acid because they, it's a different type of purine um, that, that is concentrated in the plant. So and when if the uric acid goes up, that will activate um, the, these pathways, you know, to to try to hold on to, uh, you know, to try to to activate the switch. And um, it, they can't work very well because there's not a lot of glucose to turn to, to fructose. But as a person on a low-carb diet, over time, you know, oftentimes they, they lighten up and they start eating more carbs. And now they, you know, now they can convert those carbs to fructose. And, uh, you know, so I think that, um, that there's more than one way to get to the fructose. It isn't just, you know, from high glycemic carbs and sugar. But even umami foods can drive uh, fructose production to some extent. Mm. There's another study, Richard, that speaks to your point about the combination of saturated fat and fructose possibly being the kind of double-edged sword, um, or sorry, the worst case scenario, I should say. And that was the sober cases. It was a 2010 paper, healthy male subjects, and they looked at three groups. Um, 35% of calories from fructose, 30% from saturated fat, or 65% from both fructose and saturated fat. And they were matching the energy between those groups. And these were all hypercaloric, so there was a, a surplus of energy. And the fructose group had an increase in liver fat by 16%, the saturated fat group by 86%. But then when you combined fructose and saturated fat, it was 133%. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, I... I believe that um, the when you when you go on saturated fat, you know that there's enough fructose in the system to to really there might be there, there's still probably enough fructose in the system that the saturated fat is will is just going to drive that fat up in the liver very quickly. Um, and if there's no fructose, it will still drive the fat up, but maybe not as much. So the eighty six percent 
what what we don't know is how much you know fructose were they actually eating and you know was there fructose being produced in the liver but but it, it for sure the data shows you know in terms of the practical thing for west for our diets that saturated fats can increase fatty liver pretty significantly probably more than just sugar when sugar is given with a low fat diet What's the interaction there? So from a mechanism point of view, if you were going to hypothesize, I appreciate this might not be fully understood, but what is it about, say, fructose um, sort of interacting with saturated fat to make saturated fat more deleterious in terms of this liver fat deposition? Okay, so uh, fructose, remember, generates intracellular uric acid, and fatty liver is really linked with intracellular uric acid levels. It's been shown in like hibernating animals and all kinds of things where the, you know, the hepatic uric acid really is a good marker for how much fat is in the liver. And uh, fructose increases it, saturated fats increase it a little bit, but the combination really drives it up. Now, interestingly, uh, one of the things that's, uh, you know, is, you know, how does saturated fat raise uric acid um, and, and how do fats do? And there's some data that, you know, uh, ketosis can raise uric acid, but there's also data that when you start getting fat, uh, adipose fat, that that um, kind of creates a local hypoxic state or a local area with low, low oxygen, which stimulates uric acid production. And um, so there, there is this interesting thing where, the, you know, fat itself may drive uric acid production and lowering fat can lower uric acid for sure. Um, so if there is a relationship of fat with uric acid. I mean, there were studies done many years ago showing that putting people on a high fat diet can raise their uric acid levels. Um, and so, may, you know, I, I was looking to see the saturated fat increase uric acid more than polyunsaturated fat. Um, I couldn't find uh, any data on that. But, uh, um, but I do know that like in our study where we gave saturated fat, we measured hepatic uric acid and it went way up with the combination. Mm. So it could be that. And the way the uric acid works is it causes oxidative stress of the mitochondria uh, which is the energy factories. And then that actually stimulates uh, fat synthesis and blocks flat fat degradation. But, you know, when you're eating fat, you also can, you know, just the fat itself can, you know, can, can end up uh, in the liver uh, just from eating a lot of fat. You know, mm-hmm. there's some evidence that, that that might be a mechanism too. Richard, from a, a survival point of view, um, I mean, you mentioned animals, what they what they do in the wild sort of before going into hibernation is, you know, sort of indulge, I guess, on, on food and, and build up these fat stores. Do they preferentially store it as subcutaneous or visceral fat? And I'm sort of wondering here, like what, what, what would be the, the mechanism or the biological rationale for storing fat viscerally from a survival point of view? That's a good question. Um, it does tend to, st- uh, to store it viscerally, fructose does. And, um, and so I'm not exactly sure why. I know that uh, in some animals, um, sub- you know, so subcutaneous fat can act to raise, can, can act as an insulation, so it can raise body temperature. So for example, um, animals in the desert tend not to want to put fat 
in their subcutaneous or because it can raise body temperature because it, mm. ins- it acts like an insulate insulation system. So they'll put it, the fat in their tail or in a hump or on their back and so forth. Whales actually try to put it more for insulation. So part of it might relate to the survival, you know, the, the, the trait of that particular animal. Have, have you, have you come across Roy Taylor's sort of, he talks about a personal fat threshold and how some of us may have more capacity to store subcutaneous fat. Um, and if, if that's you, that's, I guess you're lucky. Whereas others, um, at a same level of body fat will store it more preferentially as, as visceral fat. Is that something that you think, um, exists? Yeah. Well, well, there's these studies that show that glucose tends to want, if it's not converted to fructose, glucose tends to drive fat in the subcutaneous tissues, whereas fructose tends to drive it in the visceral tissues. Mm. And that's that beautiful study, you know, that was done by Kim Stanhope um, uh, in people. And um, my, my, my belief is that uh, if, if there are people who tend to put it subcutaneously, they probably have um, better vascular and endothelial function where they're resistant to the effects of fructose. So you can have a fair amount of fructose on board, but not have it activate your switch if your mitochondria are really healthy. So like when you're younger, you know, sugar doesn't do as much to you because you're mitochondria are very healthy, your vascular function is very healthy. And even if it does induce a little bit of oxidative stress, it's not enough to activate the switch. But what we currently drinking, eating a lot of fructose over time, then it starts to build up. So there there are definitely people who are resistant to fructose. So if you see a study being done in a 20 year old who's a lean, and there's lots of studies that are done by this, it's kind of a favorite tactic of the sugar industry is you pick someone who's got beautiful vascular function and it's really pretty hard to show up an effect of fructose in the short term uh, in these people. If you're like a super athlete, you can drink soft drinks pretty easily without any, any evidence that it's doing anything because your mitochondria are so, so super. But if you give uh, this repeatedly over time, it starts to wear down those mitochondria. They start getting, you know, the oxidative stress is, results in a more profound inhibition of mitochondrial function and so forth. So there is this kind of transition. The other thing is that over a long period of time, the mitochondria will actually can decrease in number. And so you can kind of get locked in. And then the effects of fructose may not be so obvious because you're already in a low mitochondrial state. So for example, if you're you've been obese for a very long time, you may or may not be able to show a big effect of fructose because your mitochondria are already, um, you know, there's already very low intracellular ATP levels. So actually we did a study in diabetics um, and you can kind of see the reserve of how much, how, how it happens because uric acid, if you give fructose and uric acid levels go up, that means that you're depleting the ATP and activating the switch. But the trouble is, is a lot of people, once they become diabetic, their ATP levels are already very low. Mm. So it's very hard to actually see that rise in uric acid. And so the blunt, the rise in uric acid with fructose disappears as you, as your, as your uh, body gets, mm. you know, uh, 
you know, so your mitochondria go down. The good news is, as you know, you can rejuvenate my mitochondria. And that is absolutely the way to go for people with, you know, been obese a long time. So things like intermittent fasting or low fructose diet, low, low, uh, low salt diet, those all can stimulate mitochondria. Vitamin C does. But your best thing is exercise, and exercise really helps boost those mitochondria. Yeah, we've I've been diving deep into the exercise with biochemists and exercise physiologists, and talking about uh, zone two training for improving the mitochondrial efficiency, and um, zone five training or hit that high intensity training for stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis, so get, getting more of the mitochondria. Um, so this is a, a this is a nice kind of overlap here with, with what you're talking about. I want to come back to um, kind of zoom out and, and sort of make sense of this um, from a, from a, a very um, practical level for the listeners. But something else that, that I do want to touch on is the type of fat um, because you've mentioned a couple of times a high fat diet has done this um, and there does seem to to, to be this kind of anti-polyunsaturated fat type rhetoric online and I can't personally make a lot of sense of it. Um, and when I was looking through a lot of these trials with you, I was finding some some pretty fascinating results and there's a couple studies here I'd like to, to go through because it seems that when it comes to hepatic fat that diff, diff, the type of fat matters a lot. And there was a, a study, and I'd like to discuss with you, and you, you sort of spoke about uric acid before, but if there's potentially other mechanisms here at play, um, the Bajermo uh, 2012 paper, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but B-J-E-R-M-O, it was a 10-week study, 67-odd participants that were abdominally obese adults, and really neat. They randomized them to a high saturated fat or a high polyunsaturated fat diet. And that polyunsaturated fat diet was mostly omega-6 fats, the ones that tend to get demonized the most. And the goal was weight maintenance, but they did put on a little bit of weight. It was under a kilogram, but over the 10 weeks. And in the saturated fat group, liver fat went up by 7% relative to baseline. And in the polyunsaturated fat group, it went down by 9% relative, relative to baseline. And these researchers were also interested in looking at inflammation and oxidative stress. And so online you'll hear quite regularly that omega-6s are, are, are bad when it comes to inflammation and oxidative stress, but they found no increase in, in either of these um, in the polyunsaturated fat group. And they their conclusion, which I have here, was that compared with saturated fat intake, Omega-6 polyunsaturated fats reduce liver fat and modestly improve metabolic status without weight loss. A high omega-6 polyunsaturated fat intake does not cause any signs of inflammation or oxidative stress. Yes, I agree with you. So, so let's just, uh, you know, go back. You know, I, I believe fructose is really playing a big role in driving metabolic syndrome, but it works best when it's given with fat to make you know, works best, meaning creates the most fat uh, when it's working with a high fat diet. But the type of fat really makes a difference. And um, when it comes to calories, fat is all nine calories or so per gram. But um, but when it comes to the type of fat, it really does seem to make a difference. And saturated fat um, really seems to be the, the, 
the, the worst culprit. And when you compare it to polyunsaturated fats, the saturated fat diets that I, you know, when I've seen this, like the study you talked about, which is a great one, the saturated fats tend to do to cause more, um, a worse uh, uh, fatty liver, uh, you know, evidence of more inflammation, you know, a greater rise in LDL, cholesterol, um, all the bad things. So saturated fat tends to be worse. And, and you're right that, you know, there's, there's some data that omega-3 fatty acids can really, um, you know, like help block fructose effects. And there are all these studies. I've never done one of these studies, but there are lots of studies suggesting that omega-3 is really good. And, th and that led to this concept that the omega-3, omega-6 ratio is really, really important. And these days, a lot of people are eating seed oils that are rich in omega-6. And so there's this, uh, there's all this stuff in the internet saying that the omega-6 is really uh, a big problem. But if you actually dive into the literature, there's not so much evidence that omega-6 uh, is doing anything, you know, bad compared to, you know, other fats like saturated fat looks like it's the winner for being the, the worst loser. <laughs> it's saturated fat appears to be the, uh, much worse than polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats like olive oil seem to be pretty healthy. So my, my guess is that, um, that, you know, that polyunsaturated fats are, are getting a bad shake. Um, and that um, omega-3s clearly look beneficial. Omega-6, you know, most studies suggest that they're not as bad as people are saying. But saturated fats, when you, you take a diet high in saturated fats, you're going to get into trouble. It's going to cause fatty liver. It's going to, um, you know, it's going to raise your LDL. It's going to be associated with atherosclerosis and increased risk for heart disease. Uh, so we do need to... Uh, restrict our saturated fat. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, beautifully summarized. I, I think that where some of the confusion comes, and I can sort of understand how someone could be confused by this, is that there, there's a difference between uh, an omega-6 uh, fat sort of on its own and the effect it has on health versus where a lot of omega-6s are found, which is in ultra-processed foods, which is a, a, a whole food matrix. And we know that ultra-processed foods are, are deleterious for, for health, but there, there yes. are many things in those foods other than the seed oil, which does show up on the label, but they, you know, they lack fiber, they lack protein, they lack water, they have often added glucose and fructose. So, um, and salt and salt. So there are many reasons why they're probably hyperpalatable and leading to um, the poor health outcomes or associated with the poor health outcomes that we we see. Um, this is great, Richard. You've clarified a lot of things for me. I want to I want to kind of finish here on metabolic health and sort of tying all of this together because I know I realize that if someone sort of jumped into this and perhaps didn't listen to our last episode, we've gone straight into the deep end here with a lot of these studies and we're talking about liver fat um, and uh, blood glucose and triglycerides etc. Can you just define to me what does metabolic health mean? To you, if someone that that doesn't have metabolic health has metabolic syndrome, like what is metabolic health? Okay, well, to me, metabolic health is when your 
energy factories that are producing ATP are working at a very high level and your intracellular energy levels are ATP levels are good. So I, I think, you know, metabolic health is really a, an energy condition. So uh, what, what um, fructose does is think of energy as stored energy and active energy. And active energy is our ATP. And that's what makes us do everything we want to do. And stored energy is there to, to help replace the active energy as it's being used if there's no food around in particular. And uh, what happens is in, in normal health, ATP levels are high in all the cells and they remain high. So what happens is when you eat, when you take in cal calories, they're used to keep that ATP level at a high level. And, you know, there's uh, metabolic flexibility where the stored energy in the form of fat and glycogen, they, they can replace the energy as needed and, and it can go back and forth with ease. And so the ATP levels are high. When you eat fructose, it tricks the cell into reducing the ATP levels. And we've showed exactly how that happens. And once the ATP levels are low, uh, what happens is that it sets off an alarm that says, hey, I want to gain weight. I want to store fat. I want to become insulin resistant. I want to raise my blood pressure. I'm going to do all these survival things because my energy levels are, are dropping and they're sensing the ATP. And, 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 and when that happens, when the fructose does that, it actually, when you eat the food, instead of replacing the ATP, it shunts it into fat and only replaces a tiny bit of the ATP so that your ATP levels stay low and you keep eating until finally the ATP levels get back up to normal. And then you, but at the expense that you've now eaten more and you've, you've eaten a lot more than you normally would. And so but then, then you eat more fructose, the ATP levels come down and then you get hungry and, you know, and eventually you kind of get locked into that. So to me, it's an energy disorder. And what's interesting is uh, studies of people with diabetes, studies of people with obesity, studies of people with fatty liver. If you measure the liver ATP levels, they are low in all conditions. And that's what fructose does. And that's why fructose is, is initiating this. It's not the driver of obesity in the sense of uh, clinically. The fructose sets the stage. It creates the metabolic unhealth where now when you eat fat and especially saturated fat, you know, that drives up the weight gain, the fatty liver and all those things because you set the system to a low energy level. And, um, and so, and, and actually it's only a low ATP level. The total energy, you know, by energy balance is the active energy plus the stored energy. So diabetes is actually a high energy state, but just that it's all in fat and you can't release it to, to, to restore the ATP levels. So to me, um, I think that uh, there will be a day when, when people will want to have their intracellular ATP measured because that is probably the, the most important measurement for metabolic health. And, uh, you know, if you're a super athlete with great mitochondria, you, you have scintillating ATP levels. And, uh, you know, and if you're uh, 
been diabetic for a very long time, your intracellular ATP levels tend to be low and the liver is the heart of it. You know, when we did our studies, if you knock out the fructose metabolism in the liver, the ATP levels come up in the, in the liver and it, it's associated with not just metabolic health for the liver, but reduced, you know, it actually, um, you know, the way fructose is working, you drop the ATP levels in the liver, that can drive the metabolic syndrome and, through the whole body. So the liver is sort of the heart where it all begins, you know, when it comes to energy balance. So maintaining good ATP levels in the liver is really the key. Mm. Quick, quick question on, on, on future studies. So let's say there's a study that comes out because from what, from what I'm hearing, you're saying fructose background fructose intake is really the problem here. It's, it's causing this, um, reduction in ATP. And I'm curious, would you have to change your hypothesis or um, the way you're looking at this? If you saw a study on healthy adults who had a low fructose background diet that were fed high saturated fat and their liver fat increased substantially? Yeah. Um, it, it seems like you're being a little sly here. <laughs> I'm not trying to sneak in a study. I'm just curious as opposed to if in the future a study like that did oh, come okay. out, would that um, that would be a little sly if somehow I, I pulled out a study. That was <laughs> I, can, I can assure you no. I'm not doing that. Um, all okay. these studies we've, we've exchanged on email and, and spoken about. So yes. there's none yeah. of that. Well, you know, if you're uh, so – so I think that saturated fats can increase fatty liver in the absence of fructose. I really believe that. We did a study with fructo, a fructose knockout mouse where it can't metabolize fructose. And if I, if I uh, give it uh, butter fat, it will get fatty liver. Not much inflammation, but it will get fatty liver. And, um, and so uh, I do believe that Fats can drive fatty liver. I don't know if they drop the ATP level. And, uh, you know, and as we mentioned, fat could potentially increase uric acid, which actually will help drive the ATP down. So it's, it could still be a low ATP state uh, with just fat alone. So it may, it may be that fructose is not the only thing that can activate the switch. Um, it's possible that saturated fat may have some effect as well. Um, you know, uh, the fact that saturated fat alone can cause some insulin resistance would, would be supportive of that. And uh, evolutionarily, um, eating sa a saturated fat might be a good way to increase your fat stores. So, um, you know, it might, might engage some of these same pathways and perhaps it's through its ability to raise uric acid. So, you know, I think that we have to be open and uh, my work and the work of my collaborators um, is based on our, uh, you know, uh, interpretation of the data that we've done and we're open to, to uh, modify the hypothesis for sure. But, um, you know, it does look to me, like um, all these metabolic diseases are really energy disorders where we're dropping the energy in the cell. And, uh, and if we can stimulate the energy 
ATP levels to go up, we can really make a difference. And this is why exercise is so good. This is why, uh, you know, reducing the bad foods will help, um, you know, and it isn't just sugar, it's high glycemic carbs. It's really salty foods. It's, uh, you know, uh, really, yeah, alcohol will do it. And real, uh, and some of these umami foods like liver, uh, organ meats, uh, processed red meats. And, uh, you know, um, so there's a lot of, lot of uh, mm. things that can do it. So you, you mentioned there that the liver is sort of central to this kind of metabolic health puzzle that we're talking about. Um, I'm not sure that everyone fully appreciates the role of the, the liver. How would you sort of go about summarizing in, I guess, in lay terms? If someone said to you at dinner, um, Rick, tell me about, you know, how, how is the liver involved in, in sort of the management of glucose and, and fats or glucose and lipid metabolism? Well, they, you know, the, the liver is the first main organ that when we eat food, the, the nutrients go into the liver. And this is the place where a lot of the processing of protein and fats uh, is, is occurring. And the, so the liver has really been always recognized as the metabolic organ. And it's, um, it's the main organ that creates ketones and it does a lot of the gluconeogenesis that produce glucose. It's really involved in many metabolic pathways. And um, when, when, when we give fructose, we, we see reductions of ATP, not just in the liver, but we see it in the brain and we see it in the kidney and we see it in the vasculature. So for sure, the fructose pathway is working through all of these different places and probably is important uh, in all those different places. But the reason we think that it is the liver is, is the king is because uh, we, we did a study where we knocked out fructose metabolism in the intestine, the brain, and, and the liver. And so we had animals that could metabolize fructose everywhere except the liver, for example. And when we did that, we found that we could block not just fatty liver, if we gave them fructose, they, you know, the ones that could not metabolize fructose in their liver were protected from fatty liver, they were, they were protected from insulin resistance. And then interestingly, they were pr protected from weight gain and they were protected from fat accumulation in their adipose tissue. So it was kind of a strange finding where just blocking in the liver could affect weight and adipose tissue. And, and, it's, and it kept the animals leptin sensitive. Um, and and we, when we studied the the leptin resistance, which is what drives people to eat more, it's due to a problem in the hypothalamus of the brain where they get inflammation up there. But if you knock out the, the fructose metabolism in the liver, they don't get the inflammation in the brain. So there's some kind of liver-brain communication that's involved in how fructose works. And if you block fructose metabolism in the liver, you get benefits above and beyond the liver. You get they, they, you end up regulating your intake, food intake, and maybe that has a role in preventing fat and weight gain. Um, and you, you prevent uh, insulin resistance from developing. Um, and so, yeah, I think the liver is really a major, a major site for the metabolic syndrome. And um, it may not be the only site. We know that there are things going on in other tissues 
but uh, it's it's like the king. <laughs> right. You mentioned insulin resistance there. Um, is it the accumulation of, of liver fat or hepatic fat um, What that's primarily driving insulin resistance in the liver? I don't t- really know because um, they tend to go together and um, – and, you know, the fact that saturated fats can increase liver fat and cause mild insulin resistance, you know, is another thing that kind of links the two. Um, it's very hard to separate it. Um, there's evidence that it's linked with oxidative uh, stress to the mitochondria um, in both situations. So um, there may be a, like a common pathway till the, till the very end, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, where they separate. Um, so I, I, I think that you, we should view the two as being intricately linked. <laughs> yeah. I guess when I think of the liver and its involvement in sort of glucose homeostasis, I often think of an analogy to do with the bathtub. Uh, I'll share it with you and you can tell me what you think of it. Um, and you may have heard this before, sort of you, you can imagine a bathtub and, and the tap is the liver and when it's running that sort of glucose going into the the blood which uh into the the sort of water building up in the bathtub that's the blood in that's the glucose in the bloodstream and the drain at the bottom of the bathtub is muscle it could be other cells but um so glucose can sort of build up in that bathtub which in this analogy is is water if either the tap is unable to be turned off um, which is at the side of the liver or the drain cannot be opened which is at the side of the muscle um that's great yeah it's absolutely true you know we were doing some studies and you know clearly in 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 diabetes the uric acid seems to have a role in driving the gluconeogenesis the production and release of glucose from the liver is being driven a little bit by the by the uric acid um and but there's also another uh, player. And the third player is that in metabolic syndrome, not only is there, you know, you've got this uh, resistance, you know, the, the muscle's not taking up the glucose and there's more coming out from the liver, but also um, the insulin release from the pancreas starts off being to compensate, you know, goes up and up to try to compensate. But over time, the islets in the pancreas that make insulin get weathered down and uh, they, they, there's oxidative stress going on in the islets and they, there's a, a loss of the uh, insulin secretion and there's some scarring in there. And, you know, we've, we've shown that fructose can do that. So if we fed like a, in that study where we gave sugar to rats that was on, on a caloric restriction, uh, we could show that there was actually um, the, the sugar high sugar fed animals were developing islet dysfunction. But again, remember that was a four month study in a rat. So that's, you know, it would be like a long study in a human, but, and that hasn't been done. <laughs> what's, what's the problem with high blood sugar? You mentioned um, blood sugar then or blood glucose. Why is this such a, a problem for, for human physiology? Well, uh, I think that the problem isn't so much the high blood glucose, but the fact that the there's uh, 
the uptake of the glucose into the skeletal muscle is being blocked and and basically that there the problem is is the intracellular metabolism again that, that the atp levels are low and that the and that the nutrients aren't getting in there mm-hmm. but it's more than just the glucose it's um it's you know it's 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 uh it's really the intracellular uh, machinery um one of the things that's really interesting is um uh in the brain, you know, much some of the brain is responsive to glucose uh, alone, and some requires insulin to move the glucose into the brain cells. So certain regions of the brain are insulin dependent, and other areas are not. And uh, when when you become insulin resistant with fructose, you're also becoming insulin resistant in the brain for those areas of the brain that like that require insulin. And so certain areas of the brain are actually the metabolism is, is lower because the, 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 there's not enough insulin action to bring the glucose into the brain, uh, into the brain cells. So glucose levels can be high, but they're not actually getting into the neurons. And it's been shown, it's very interesting, Simon, but the areas of the brain that are insulin dependent are involved in self-control and, um, you know, a lot of these things that are involved in kind of countering what a, the foraging response. So when you're foraging, you actually want to um, go into new areas. You know, you have to go into areas you've not been before. So there's exploratory behavior. You have to look around a lot. You can't deliberate. You, you have, uh, if there's, you have to be able to overcome, you know, the, the recognition that it could be a dangerous area. So you don't want a lot of self-control and willpower. You want to lessen that so that you're more likely to go in to get that food um, and, you know, risk finding a predator. You may have to be a little more aggressive. And so the areas of the brain that are, are inhibited by fructose are the areas that are involved in the self-control, recent memory as well, where you don't really want to vividly remember what was in that area that you're going to go into now. And so whereas the areas of the brain that are involved in foraging, like there's this part of the brain called the anterior cingulate, you know, um, fructose doesn't inhibit, uh, you know, the activity there because it wants it wants a foraging behavior to be maintained. What's really interesting is glucose has the opposite effects. So glucose actually suppresses the foraging response, um, you know, uh, whereas fructose activates it. And what's interesting is that, you know, if you reduce the energy metabolism to these areas of the brain and you do that chronically, um, you can start seeing mitochondrial problems, neuronal loss, and it's, those are the exact regions of the brain where Alzheimer's occurs. And the areas that are involved in foraging, like the anterior cingulate, are spared in Alzheimer's. And so uh, t- recent studies have shown that fructose levels are high in the brain of Alzheimer's patients, especially early in the course when, they, you know, when there's still metabolism going on. And so um, my belief is that the high glucose and the blood isn't really the problem. It's really reflecting the insulin resistance. And, and that's the problem. And you're not getting the nutrients that you need to your skeletal muscle, but you're also not getting it to your brain. 
So it would be ideal to not be insulin resistant. Do you think that's why there's some, I guess, emerging research looking at the utility of a ketogenic diet for folks with neurodegenerative disease? Yeah, I think that that is probably one way it benefits is that it's it's helping to decrease the fructose levels in the brain. And, and you know, like things like a continuous glucose monitor and things like that, where you can kind of figure out what foods trigger your glucose level to go way up. You know, personally, I think that, you know, if we can keep our glucose levels down, we can reduce the amount of fructose we're producing. As I mentioned earlier on, you know, there's a study done by uh, Dr. Sherwin at Yale, where he, he took people and he raised their blood glucose, clamped it at like 200 milligrams per deciliter, and showed that it resulted in a marked increase in fructose production in the brain. And we do not want to have a lot of fructose in the brain because uh, all the data suggests that it can, you know, cause memory problems, that, you know, you give fructose to animals, they have trouble navigating a maze and so, um, and it's, it's probably initiated, was supposed to help us with our foraging response. It was meant to be a survival response. And, you know, in the short term, it probably does, you know, benefit. But when you're eating sugar all the time or making sugar all the time, I think that this is what's causing a lot of our problems. So, you know, getting back, uh, I agree with you that saturated fat is a, is a big problem. And um, I agree with you that polyunsaturated fats, you know, have gotten, a, a, you know, a bad call. That, that The evidence is not so great that they're bad. Um, omega-3 for sure seems to be good. And omega-6, you know, there isn't that much data that it's bad. Um, I agree with you. Uh, but I do think that this fructose pathway is a lot more important than we think. And yes, if you just give fructose to an animal, they, you know, they don't gain weight so much. They, you know, won't get so much fatty liver, perhaps, uh, at least in the short term. Saturated fat is a stronger way to, to increase fat in the liver in the short term. But we're in, in, all of us are on these diets that have too much, uh, too much fructose. Most of us are, are getting, are either eating or making too much fructose. And if we could just reduce our glycemic carbs and we could, you know, cut back on salt, drink a lot more water, uh, really reduce our sugar intake, not necessarily eliminate it, of course, but just really cut it back. Um, Plant-based diets are great. You know, I, I think we could, we could have a big impact. And, um, uh, and so uh, the, the problem with fructose is it isn't just the fructose we eat, it's the fructose we make. So just keep that in mind when we look at these studies. I think that's a great point. I think it's a, it's a telling point. Um, you know, I think if, if people were to kind of not have read your book or listen to you in detail, they might just think, well, Dr. Johnson's, he, he, he's against fructose in food, but what you're saying is fructose in general, and that can be through the food or what your body makes. And, um, you know, going back to those studies we spoke about earlier, where they compared glucose to fructose and didn't see any difference. Um, you explained that the body will create fructose from glucose, which I think helps clarify that. Um, one thing that we haven't spoken about here, we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about liver fat and we've spoken about saturated fats and fructose and, and glucose and polyunsaturated fats. Um, 
and I think we we agree on pretty much all of that. Um, one thing that we haven't spoken about here, which is part of metabolic syndrome, is triglycerides. And certainly when you do look at these studies where there is a difference, a real difference um, or another difference that we haven't yet touched on is particularly when you look at these diets with excess sugar. In a diet that's providing excess um, calories and there's a lot of calories coming from sugar, it does seem to result in a conversion of these excess carbohydrates into fat and you get this increase in triglycerides. Um, can you kind of walk us through what's happening here in the liver and, and what's the – like if someone's thinking, you know, Doc, what, what's the problem with high triglycerides? Well, um, you know, I'm not an expert on high triglycerides, but um, it is has been linked with cardiovascular risk. It may be hard to separate it from some of the other things coupled with um, high triglycerides. So high triglycerides is linked with insulin resistance and all the features of metabolic syndrome. Um, and, and, you know, high triglycerides can be associated with conditions like acute pancreatitis and all kinds of problems. So, um, you know, none of us want to have high triglycerides and it is viewed as a cardiovascular risk factor, a lesser one than LDL cholesterol, but nevertheless, it's generally viewed as one. And so we try to reduce the triglycerides, not only for that, but also to reduce the risk for pancreatitis and things like that. Um, I actually, uh, for a long time, Simon, I was convinced that the fructose pathway was only indirectly linked with heart disease and that the way it uh, was, was maybe the triglycerides did it a little bit, but really what fructose was doing was causing, um, it's, it's linked with uh, what we call arteriolosclerosis, raising blood pressure and causing narrowing of the small arterioles and not with atherosclerosis where you get these big fatty plaques and so forth. So um, I always thought that the, um, the relationship was, was um, more uh, with what we call arteriolosclerosis than with atherosclerosis. But what's happened is uh, I've become more and more aware that, you know, the metabolic syndrome and this fructose pathway is associated with a high uric acid. And uh, what's happened is there's been a, the discovery recently, you know, so high uric acid, you know, is the cause of gout and gout is this disease that uh, affects like 5% of the population, four or 5%. And um, it's this very bad inflammatory arthritis where uric acid crystallizes into the joints and causes this terrible pain. Um, and it, gout is associated with metabolic syndrome and, you know, gout can be precipitated by fructose and, um, and also high purine foods. And so, um, you know, so I always thought that, uh, that uric acid, uh, you know, the, the crystal problem with uric acid was, was restricted to the joints and maybe a little bit in the kidneys. Um, but what's happened is in the last five years, they've discovered that people with high uric acid levels, and, and especially with gout, can deposit crystals in their blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And there's now two or three studies showing that 85% um, of people with gout can ha have crystals in their in their blood vessels, and they use a special scanner called the dual energy CT scan and the, or DEX scan. And this DEX scan can identify the, the uric acid crystals. 
And what's incredible, Simon, is they, they localize to the atherosclerotic plaque. So if you find it in the coronary arteries, it's usually where there's a cholesterol plaque. And the same thing in the blood vessels like the aorta. And they've actually done studies and autopsy studies and the crystals are present in these plaques. And just as cholesterol crystals are thought to initiate inflammation in these plaques, and so your saturated fat diets cause the cholesterol and oxidized LDL, and that's involved in stimulating inflammation in these plaques, the urate crystals may also be doing the same thing. So uh, two, all roads lead to Rome, and, uh, and it looks to me like um, that this could be a mechanism linking the fructose pathway and the metabolic syndrome pathway to heart disease, and it, not necessarily the triglycerides, they might be, uh, you know, a sort of a marker. They're probably involved to some extent, but, um, it, you know, it's part of the syndrome. And we now know that people who have a high uric acid in the absence of gout, that about 15% of them have crystals in their blood vessels. And so this, this also raises the problem of, you know, what happens to the people on the keto diets whose uric acids shoot up? Could they be getting crystal deposition in their blood vessels? And we need to do studies to kind of to look at this because, you know, like on keto diets, you can get, you know, gout attacks are not that uncommon. Do we know what a healthy uric acid level is yet if someone was to go and test yeah, it? Yeah, I think we do. <laughs> so first, it's the intracellular uric acid that really makes the difference. And, um, and for example, if you have kidney disease and you're retaining uric acid, the High uric acid may not be the same as if you're making the uric acid. Uh, so, you know, uric acid, we make it and then we excrete it. And so if your kidney function is not so good, you can retain the uric acid. And that may not be as uh, dangerous as uh, intracellular uric acid because when it's produced inside the cell, that's involved in the, you know, activation of this switch. But if it's elevated just from retention, its main risk may be more of crystallization. Uh, but, but when you have like, um, you know, so, so it sort of depends on, on, on what's driving up the uric acid. But in general, if your uric acid is greater than seven in, or milligrams per deciliter, which is about 420 micromolar, uh, like in Australia, um, it, you know, that's associated with significant increased risk for obesity, diabetes, fatty liver, hypertension, it increases the risk for dementia, it increases, you know, the, the risk for many, many things, but, uh, meta, you know. If you go and measure that at the a standard lab, is that a, yep. an intracellular test or do you, do you have to ask? No, it's measuring the serum, but the serum levels do, are very predictive. But it, when you and when you do clinical studies where you lower uric acid, you tend to improve things like blood pressure a little bit, insulin resistance, um, even weight gain can be, you know, like studies in adolescents show that it can reduce uh, weight gain to some extent. Um, so it, it's probably involved in this pathway. It's not like the cure all, though, if you lower the uric acid. Uh, it isn't that you're going to get a huge uh, benefit, but you seem to get uh, a, a reasonable benefit, particularly early in the disease. And remember, we talked about how how early in the metabolic syndrome, the uh, mitochondria are reversible and 
you know, so that if you block this pathway, the mitochondrial function can likely improve. Whereas if your mitochondria, if you've lost a lot of mitochondria, uh, you know, the benefit of lowering uric acid may not be as, mm-hmm. as clear. So, um, uh, you know, so the, for example, when we did studies in animals, we found that if we raised uric acid, blood pressure went up, but if we waited a long time, the blood pressure would stay up because of, of injury that was occurring in the kidney. So that then lowering uric acid wasn't beneficial. It was only an early hypertension. Um, and, and so we did a study in, in adolescence where uh, we took uh, 14, 15 year old kids who were diagnosed with high blood pressure. They were all overweight. Uh, and we randomized them to a uric acid lowering drug or placebo. And we corrected blood pressure in about 90% of them just by lowering uric acid with not, without any antihypertensive therapy. And uh, it was, you know, 3% in the placebo group. So yeah. it was very, very significant, but you know, that we caught them early when they're theoretically their mitochondria are, are, are still relatively healthy. Yeah, that's super interesting. As is your um, theory about triglycerides. I, I always thought and actually think um, what you sort of put forward might help explain things a little more at my end. I always thought that triglycerides were raising sort of risk of cardiovascular disease um, simply by increasing the number of ApoB containing lipoproteins because they have to be carried in these VLDL um, yeah, sort of it could pro- be. lipoproteins that chaperone them in the blood and and that those ApoB lipoproteins are sort of uh, susceptible to entering the, the intima and becoming retained. Um, but I have seen some studies where they've looked at triglycerides and sort of adjusted for ApoB and it, it seems to account for a fair bit of the risk, but there's always a residual risk where triglycerides are, are still increasing disease um, to some extent yeah. beyond the ApoB sort of element. So um, that's really interesting. Yeah, and your, your point about the ApoB is really right, seems to be right on too. I, I, I like that. So I want to finish here just if someone was to go and do a bit of an audit um, on their liver. And um, we've spoken about liver fat. I think in the literature, there's this sort of threshold where people talk about 5% of liver cells containing uh, abnormal amounts of fat, um, often leading to a sort of diagnosis of fatty liver. Um, So I'm interested in hearing from you on, is there a a tipping point where you you have too much um, liver fat and does someone need to go and do a, a sort of liver ultrasound or can they get enough idea by looking at things like fasting glucose and HbA1c, triglycerides, et cetera? Well, there are these, uh, first off, you can kind of assess the level of fat by ultrasound as you just, I think you were suggesting. So you can, you know, if you do think, if your liver function tests are elevated on a blood test, you know, having an ultrasound done of your liver to see if there's a fair amount of fat in there is a good move. If there is, cutting out sugar and saturated fats would be a really a great move, uh, or at least, you know, reducing those significantly. I've had incredible results with people just cutting out their sugar. The, the, my whole thing where I wrote my first book occurred because uh, I had a, a one of the people in my lab, his son developed fatty liver and was drinking a lot of soft drinks. We just cut out the soft drinks and the fatty liver resolved in like two or three months. It was fantastic. 
Um, there is a thing called a fiber scan, and at least in the U.S., which is uh, a, a way to kind of look for fibrosis. And of course, the liver biopsy uh, is the gold standard. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, I do think, and I suspect you agree with me, Simon, that just an increase in fat in the liver isn't really such a concern. It's real when the when it's associated with inflammation, because mm -hmm. it's the inflammation that transforms that fatty liver into um, NASH and then to cirrhosis. And it is a terrible disease to get cirrhosis from fatty liver, and um, um, you know it's a real problem. It's especially high in people with diabetes, um, and so. Um, and, and I, I and we believe it's because this fructose is being generated uh, uh, from the high glucose. Um, but it, of course, I think the saturated fat is playing a, uh, a very important role as well. So uh, everything you say about that's right. Is there a pretty high correlation there in terms of um, would you see someone with a lot of liver fat that doesn't have much inflammation or do you typically see as liver fat's increasing we're, we're seeing uh simultaneously inflammation increasing as well you know um i they usually they, they they can definitely be distinct you can have fatty liver without inflammation and interestingly you know if you just give fructose alone you see some inflammation, but not a lot. And I think the same, we saw the same with saturated fat alone in our mice. It's really that combination of fat and sugar that really seems to lead to the inflammation. It's conceivable that really high amounts of fructose long-term can do it and high saturated fat long-term might cause um, cirrhosis, but it, it seems that it likes the combination. There's something about that combination. Uh, that really stimulates um, the inflammation and fibrosis. Um, so, yeah. Have you looked much into the the synthesis of ceramides from from saturated fats, and how does that play into all this story? Because we haven't touched on that, and I know we're getting right to the end here. But um, someone might be listening and thinking, "Why haven't they spoken about ceramides?" So, um, so fructose tends to uh, block fat oxidation, fatty acid oxidation, and stimulate lipogenesis. So it's, it's actively increasing fat um, and, uh, in the liver by increasing synthesis and blocking the burning of fatty acids and stuff. Um, in contrast, saturated fats seem to be increasing ceramides in the liver, uh, which is also associated with driving fat uh, content. I'm not absolutely certain how the ceramides are working. Um, I think you might be able to explain that better. No, it's a, it's a it's new territory for me. Um, I've seen it written about in in a few reviews, but it's it's kind of that along with increased lipolysis seems to be the mechanisms that people suggest saturated fat increases liver fat through. Exactly. So there's more fatty acids that are then taken up and, and there's a stimulation of ceramides that apparently are important in the fat, uh, in, in increasing the fat content. Mm -hmm. So they are slightly different mechanisms. And, and um, uh, you know, I, I, I think more needs to be done on this. Right. 
Okay. Well, this has been uh, extremely interesting. Thank you so much for, for coming back on and, and having this discussion with me. And I know you didn't have to, and we've exchanged so many emails. So I really appreciate your time and, and really just your passion for this space and um, talking about the mechanisms and talking about the human health outcome studies and just helping us make more sense of everything and and hopefully be able to make better decisions with our food choices. Is there anything, uh, Richard, that you feel like you wanted to discuss today that perhaps we missed or you wanted to expand on? No, I think we we hit the main topics, and but I do want to compliment you. Uh, you are a total sleuth and, you know, you you investigate the literature, you find all these studies and you're absolutely spot on with your your synthesis. So uh, I, I'm very delighted to be on this show. Um, uh, I learned a lot from you as well. And, um, and you know, you, you, the, the best way to move science forward is having discussions like this that raise these new questions. You know, why is it that this happens when we see this in the human and in, in this particular study and in this study we don't? It really uh, it gets me thinking about, you know, what I want to do next. So thank you. No, and thank you. I think your openness, and I think everyone will hear this, and, and just ability, you have your hypothesis and your thesis, but being open to discuss um, science that might not be fully aligned, but is explainable, and then thinking about future studies, it's it's a breath of fresh air. So I really appreciate everything that you're doing. And uh, I know that you're going to be involved in lots of science going forward. So um, open invite on this show, come back and sit down with us at any stage and, and share anything that um, you discover along the way. Yeah. And I have one final comment. And that is that my daughter uh, is a fan of you and thinks that you look like Johnny Depp. Or <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you, you did mention Jack Sparrow before, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> I did. That's. Came from her, I think. Okay, we'll say hello to her. Okay. Yeah, I will. Tracy. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.